Greetings and salutations, one and all, and welcome to today's episode of Risk and Reels. I am your host, Jeffrey Wheatman, and today I am joined by my dear old friend, Juliana Vita. Uh, Juliana and I worked together at Gartner for a number of years. Uh, she is now uh, she now runs uh, strategy for public sector at Splunk. Uh, she also I, I generally don't talk about people's backgrounds, but I do just want to call out one thing in her background. Uh, Juliana did us this service in the military in the Navy, and I always want to tip my proverbial hat to folks that serve. Uh, thank you for your service, Juliana, and welcome. I'm so excited. We've been planning this for a while. How are you? I am very well. Thank you, Jeffrey. And um, and it was my honor and my pleasure to serve. So thank you for always being so respectful of that. Yeah. I, so just a real quick story. So, so um, you know, Juliana and I worked at Gartner together and, they, you know, it's a big company. There are lots of people we don't necessarily know. So I was chairing the security conference in National Harbor. And one of our keynotes was, uh, well, now retired Admiral James Stavridis. And Juliana reached out to me and said, you know, I know the Admiral, any way I can be involved. So we came up with this great thing. I got up on stage and I had my little notes and I start to intro the Admiral. And I said, you know what? I'm going to actually bring up someone who knows the Admiral much better. And Juliana came up and Juliana had served with the Admiral and it was so fun. He was so taken aback and people loved it. Tons of people came up to me after and said that was so, that was so great. Mm-hmm. So, so thank you. And, and I'm glad because that, that's how we became friendly, right? Which is exactly. awesome. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's a, that's a huge conference. And I know that you were the chair of that conference for several years. And so for me, it was a great professional moment in so many ways. And the idea that you had to kind of have me surprise intro my, my first commanding officer as a young officer, that's what Emerald Savaritas was for me, was just like, I can't believe this is my life now. I mean, it was super cool. <laughs> Yeah, it's that, you know, having jumped from such a big company for me to, you know, a a small startup at Black Height was a big, a big change because the exposure we had over there was like tremendous. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, um, you know, people ask me all the time why I made the move and, and, I had a great time at Gartner. I had a great 15 year run there. I made a lot of friends, still friends with all those people. And, you know, sometimes timing just, uh, just happens. And I know you, you actually made the jump probably a year before I did. So, um, yeah, so it's, it is, it's nice to be here and it's nice to talk. So as we always do, we start off with a movie question. Uh, so, as I say, I don't know when this is going to go up, but as I sit here staring out my window at the snow, um, a lot of movies are filmed in the winter, right? So not necessarily Christmas movies. What is your favorite winter movie, winter theme, winter time, sort of open-ended? Well, you mentioned not all, you know, there are movies other than Christmas movies, but I have to, I have to go to a Christmas story. I just have to, um, Jeffrey, because- there's so many classic moments. My family, it's become like a cult classic for us. You know, the tongue on the flagpole and the fake snow in the department store when he goes to see Santa and they kick him down the slide and just all that goofy, I don't know, stuff from, from our childhood and, and before. I mean, probably well before. But um, I love that movie. You'll, you'll, shoot, you'll shoot your eye out, kid. <laughs> So sorry to disappoint you with a Christmas movie, um, but no, that's a great choice. I love, I love that movie. Um, I, I think my favorite winter theme movie though is actually uh, Groundhog Day. 
for whatever, I mean, I love that movie for a lot of reasons, but for whatever reason, I always think about when he makes the ice sculpture, when he's trying to win over uh, Andy McDowell on, you know, whatever, whatever day that was. But I just, I, I just, I, yeah. But Christmas Story, really, that is a classic, classic film. And yes, it's a Christmas movie, but it's definitely a winter movie. Uh, we've watched it plenty of times. So that is, that is an awesome, awesome uh, awesome choice. Um, I, I know what I'm going to get you for your next birthday. I'm going to buy you the bunny suit. <laughs> well, <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> and, and, then, and then next time, next time we'll share a stage. You'll have to wear the bunny suit. Uh-huh. I'll dress up yeah. as I, I guess Santa, Santa maybe. So yeah, uh, yeah but there, you know, there are so many of those, of those great movies out there. Um, you know, and I think watching a winter theme movie, Sitting inside where it's nice and warm, I think is always, uh, always a fun thing. Yeah. Uh, so, so let's talk a little bit about cyber. Um, recently, the White House released its new cybersecurity strategy. It's the, I think, probably the fourth or fifth one, right? Every, every White House, I think, since uh, George Bush uh, put one out. Um, I actually posted a blog not too long ago on it. And, um, let's, let's kind of talk a little bit about it. I think there's some great stuff in there, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts having served and, and working so closely with those government clients. What's, what's the feeling you're getting from people? Is it just another document? Do we think we got something? Does it have legs or, or as my old friend, uh, Dick Butterfield used to say, does the dog hunt? Yeah. Well, I think it's more along the lines of here's another top-down policy that will help us more when there's more implementation guidance, which will be coming. It'll, it'll be forthcoming. So it's not like, oh my gosh, this new strategy is out and now we're all going to get all the funding we've ever wanted and all the support we've ever wanted for cybersecurity. That is not going to happen. However, the fact that the administration continues to put out specific guidance that has language in there that resonates with people in the security industry, in the cybersecurity industry. That can only be helpful because, you know, if you don't have that top-down support, um, even if it's very high level and not really something that you can implement against right now, that top-down level is really important because it then turns into other policies, guidelines, memoranda, that will then have more specificity specificity about um, how to implement, you know, what the what the administration is putting out. And I think it's it's also a double edged sword. So I talk a lot about this from um, the perspective of having been in the government and awash with LRPG uh, laws, regulation, policy, and guidance. With okay, we have all these documents, we have all these policies. They often will just sit on the shelf somewhere and become something else to collect the dust. But they also are what we as security practitioners kind of always wanted. We want the attention of senior leadership. We want the um, the voice of the top levels of the government saying this is important. It's not just mid-level or low-level practitioners that are saying this is important, but it's the senior level folks too. And you have to have all of that. You know, you have to have top down, you have to have bottom up. In between is where the guts are. That's where industry gets involved. That's where we can be most helpful you know this as a, as a vendor to just go th- making broad comments about hey government we know you have these problems and let me help you is not nearly as helpful as specifically here's where we can help 
um, because there's so many vendors in the space. So all of that to say, the guidance is very helpful. It is uh, encouraging for people in the security space to say, see, this still is important. In fact, it's even more important than ever. Uh, but the devil will be in the details and the implementation guidance will follow. And that's where people will actually be able to make puts and takes and where they spend money and where they make investments about the technologies that will be, that will um, bring those policy guidance, you know, elements to life. Okay. So that's a great take. So, so a couple of sort of questions kind of diving down a, a little bit. So, so there are definitely some very different things in here than we've seen before. Mm -hmm. I think there is a much stronger push about um, addressing organizations that are within, you know, the, the critical infrastructure uh, areas. Mm -hmm. Here's the problem that I have, and, and I'd be interested to hear your, your thoughts, right? You're going to go to an energy and utility company as an example, and they have systems that are old, and they're not going to be able to lock them down. So how do we go to one of these companies and say, so, you know, this thing that works, you need to spend $200 million and replace it. Mm -hmm. Who's paying for that? <laughs> we will as, as users, right? So how do we, like, I just feel like it's, it's zero to a hundred, right? So what do we do while they're saving up their pennies to replace that $200 million system that works? Yeah. Wow. If I had the answer to that question, Jeffrey, you know, I mean, seriously, uh, that is the problem. That is a huge challenge, specifically for the public sector. That's my expertise, that there's so much technology debt. We, we know it. And, and there's even guidance about that. Thou shalt upgrade and modernize your legacy technology. Okay. You know, um, there isn't going to be a pile of money coming from the sky to, to go do that. However, I do think, I like how you put it, while they're saving up their money to go, you know, buy the next modern thing, there are cultural and people-related things that governments can do, that companies can do, that can kind of close that gap a little bit between for the technology debt to catch up. There are millions of people that work for the federal government in all the levels, you know, including the Department of Defense and all of the intelligence community, and all of the agencies that have um, a presence worldwide, like the State Department and you know others that aren't just in the United States, millions of people who still, because of cultural barriers and information sharing barriers, do not think that technology or information security is important to them, and they don't have time to go learn it all. You know, you and I are experts here, and I would venture to guess, Jeffrey, that you're still learning stuff every day, right? And so am I. So what are the chances that someone who's maybe early in their career or even mid-career in the government have even a baseline of knowledge and understanding about their role in protecting the systems that the government that they use every day? Um, there's, they're so far removed. If they're a finance person or an acquisition person, their job is to review contracts or their job is to um, do audits on, you know, down, down the line of whatever HR system that they might be an expert in. They are not thinking that they play a role in, in protecting the information of the department of XYZ, whatever they work for. So the opportunity is for senior leadership to empower those people, 
send them to the free training in the webinars. I know, you know, Splunk does it. A lot of other vendors do it. Big vendors, small vendors. We have free education. Come listen to the webinar. Come do the hands-on, you know, hackathon event. Learn something new so that when the government or when the agency that they work for does have the money to put in place the technology, that person, those people may already have an idea of, oh, I've seen this technology before, or, oh, I don't tune out when someone talks about zero trust because I don't think it's important. You know, raising the level of education and awareness of the entire workforce is just as important, I would argue, right now as turning a switch on and ripping and replacing that old technology with the new stuff. Because there's just, technology is moving so fast to wait until the tech is in place, until you actually empower people to use it is, is way too late. So that's where, that's where I think people can, can make some real changes. And it makes people feel good about the work they do. I like to say, no one goes to work wanting to suck that day. But they don't, they wanna be good. Well, when they're constantly being told, you just keep doing your job over here, Mrs. HR person or Mr. Finance person, and the IT people are gonna take care of the technology. They, they, they can't feel like they have a rightful place in you know, leveraging technology or being a good steward of it so that there's not another hack and you know, their agency doesn't get attacked. So education, awareness, training, a lot of which is free. That is where the government can get immediate results right now. Okay, interesting. So, so I think you said a lot of interesting things there, but I just want to pull a little bit on the, the sort of process and people element, right? I think the tendency is always, well, what tool can we buy when in fact we know that tools are there to enable people and process, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, hiring people has been a big challenge. We, we've actually talked about it with, with a couple of other, other guests. And I was actually at an event in, in New York yesterday, uh, and they were talking about, uh, you know, the, the difficulty. And, and um, I, think, I think there are a couple of challenges there in the people side. Number one, I think there's not enough people. Uh, but more importantly, I think there are opportunities to pull people from other areas that we are ignoring. Uh, I think there's a lot of, I mean, you and I have talked about this and, and, you know, we work together in the DEI group at, at our former employer. Um, in my opinion, there are not enough women in cybersecurity. There's not enough diversity, not just from, from a racial perspective, just from a, color, a cultural, from a background perspective, we know the government tends to be sort of monocultural in, in a lot of ways. And I think, I mean, you know, because you were in the military, they want checklists still, and we've been trying to move them away. I mean, ever since RMF came out, which I thought was a great framework that we just have to wait for a lot of people to retire because they want the checklist. They want to cover themselves. So how... How do you see not just the government, but but folks in critical infrastructure that are covered? How do we address the human problem? We just don't have people. That's well. First of all, you're right. There aren't enough people. Which, when you really think about that, is pretty scary because there are other countries on the face of the earth that do have lots of people who are indoctrinated from when they're very young to do things, you know, with hands-on keyboard or whatever other instrument of 
let me let me just not go there. You know, our 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 major global competitors have people that they can tell what to do and those people will do them. We don't have that in the in the US. Thank God. You know, we we have a much better system here. Um, but we have a lot of gaps with talent, with you know, skills, just like you said. Now that's where the automation conversation can come in. That's where we can have a conversation about you can you know, help one person be 10, 20, 100 times more productive if you incorporate modern technology that enables them to do that. But we started out the conversation by saying, you know, there might not be enough money to bring those tools in. But this isn't going to sound sexy or cool, but what, what you're talking about is going to require, honestly, like kind of brute force, personal, intentional outreach to those underrepresented groups that Experts like you, people who care about DE&I, like me and you and, and our environment and our um, people in our network, we have to create opportunities that make women, people of color, people with neurodiversity on the spectrum, and make them feel welcome, wanted, and truly included in this work that we do. That means that every, I used the, the, the example of a hackathon earlier, all those hackathons cannot cannot be branded as come wear your jeans and your hoodie and your sunglasses and you know work on this problem because guess what that doesn't appeal to a lot of other demographic groups than um the majority demographic group so um it has to be let's create an event that women might want to come to you know that that speak their language that that maybe uses different words than hunting or and I'm not saying we can change the lexicon of, of cybersecurity overnight, but we know that there are words that attract certain demographics and certain, certain words that like repel them. So let's get smart about how to attract the talent, talent pools we know are underutilized. Um, one thing I've learned about just over the last couple of years that I never really thought about was people on the autism spectrum. They would be perfect for this kind of work because they, they just want to put their head down and, and do work that is analytical and and they're not interested in the social element of you know let's hang out and have coffee and whatever but <laughs> let's let's face it though i know plenty of people who also have social issues don't, who don't really want to leave the house so yeah. not social yeah. issues but yeah they they just want to be in front of the computer but yeah. but I, that's a that's a really good point i i think sometimes we hear dei and it's always about gender and skin color Right. But I think you, you point out a really interesting um, interesting one about, about neurodiversity and that we know people on the spectrum, for example, are really good at pattern recognition because they have a level of focus that, that we can't get to. So um, in, interesting. Here, here's the challenge that I see as a white dude, right? In London at the Gartner Security Conference, I went to go attend our friend Deb Logan's presentation on using uh, neurological sort of tips and tricks. Mm -hmm. So it's a great session. I'm sitting there. I turn around. I look at the room. You know who's in the room? A bunch of women. Mm -hmm. They already know there's a problem and they can't fix it. You know who wasn't in the room? Guys. People who can actually fix the problem. Mm -hmm. How do we do do that? Because I will tell you. I have, for the last year, I have been trying to get in touch with groups that help support. I want to help. I can mentor people. I, I, you and I have had a lot of conversations about sort of careers and like what's next and what we can all do and how we can leverage what we have and what we know. 
I can mentor people, I can coach them, and I, I'm having a problem getting involvement. I mean, even, even the DEI group at Gartner, it was like me and Andrew and uh, and and a couple of people who show up, and and it was a bunch of of amazing, amazing women who aren't in a position to change yeah. the status quo. So what what do we do? How can I help? I want to help. Well, I think it's kind of the reverse of what I just said about us reaching out to underrepresented groups. If there's an event, like you probably kind of knew that when you went into Deb Logan's session, you might be one of the only white dudes in the room. Maybe you probably thought, oh, well, knowing that, maybe you could have reached out intentionally to a client or a peer or one of your former partner analyst buddies and said, hey, I'm going to go to Deb's session. You want to come with me? Um, or, you know, I know you're, you're active with in, in LinkedIn and, and women are often calling out their male allies, the, the men in their lives that are supportive, reach out to them and say, hey, bro, I'm going to this event and I, I think we need more men in the room. Would you come with me? So I think it's a two-way street there that we all can do a better job of just taking our engagement to the next level and bringing in people who we see out in the environment, engaging and sharing great content and being supportive. And when we have an opportunity to go to an event, let's bring them along. And then they tell two friends and they tell two friends and so on and so on. Um, it's not going to fix the problem tomorrow, but you are on the exact right track of all of those women in the room, of all of those women in the room, likely most of them are not in the position and don't have the power to do anything other than get more educated about a topic they're already pretty familiar with. So it's on all of us. Reach out intentionally, you know, each one teach one, whatever language, you know, whatever quip you want to use. But that's what I would suggest. You know a lot of really influential people, Jeff, and I would say use your powers for good. All I mean, right. I like that. I'm not saying you don't. I'm just saying. No, no. I, you know what? You're you're spot on. I, I maybe I'm making the the mistake of observing the problem and admiring it, and not. All right, I like that. So next time I'm gonna I'm gonna drag some some of my bros with me. So all right, excellent. So so let's let's kind of circle back because there are a couple of other things in in the new cybersecurity strategy that I thought were interesting. Um, one was the concept of um, pushing responsibility back on the hardware and software companies, right? So you work for a company that is not small, right? So you're probably in a better position to be able to make sure that everything is spot on. But there are lots of companies out there that are smaller and don't have, you know, 200 people in their in their dev team or, or their QA team. How do we do that? So I think in theory, I think it's a brilliant idea, right? But how in practice, how do we do that in an even-handed way so that the smaller companies can function. Yeah. Right. And, and how do we, how do we know what's, what's good, right? Cause no, no code is ever going to be perfect. Yep. So yep. where's the level of blame go in that particular thing? Cause I think it's a great idea. Yeah. Well, another great question. I wish I had the answer to because I'd be a bazillionaire, whatever. But one thing that I, a couple things that I think could work. And that is, um, this was a concept that was un unfamiliar to me before I joined a software company. And that is the concept of selling through the channel, selling through larger companies that we partner with because they have a broader reach, reach than we do. 
you're right, Splunk is not small. It's also not a behemoth. Um, there are a couple of them out there. I won't name them. Um, but even they want to expand their reach with more customers. So how do you do that? You find a channel partner who has relationships with other um, client bases or other vendors that you can be better together with. So I think that's one way. Now, I can't speak for every other vendor and I can't speak for every small company and, and how how expensive that is for small businesses. I don't know how difficult, but I, I would imagine that the same kind of structures that exist in the partner and channel ecosystem and the government, quite honestly, because there are public and private partnerships that are gaining more ground today than there ever were before. And thank God for that, because the government cannot do it, not even close to on their own. You know, they need industry to come along. So hence the public and private partnerships. That is somewhere where I, I believe companies of all sizes are welcome to engage, you know, because there's an awareness that even at strong, you know, tech companies with brands like Splunk that have been around for a while, even we don't have all the answers either. And there, we don't, every element of tech or cybersecurity is not our, our niche. It is not somewhere where we're going to invest. So we benefit when those smaller vendors kind of enter that ecosystem as well. So it has to be the, those partnerships because there is no way every small company that has, even if they have the best widget in the world, will be successful selling to the government. It's too hard. It's too hard. It's too bureaucratic. There are whole businesses that are built around helping small companies do business with the government. And most of them stop trying. Most, not, I shouldn't say that most. A large portion of small companies just say, I can't afford this. I can't do it. I can't get the FedRAMP certification. I can't. But together in a partnership kind of structure, maybe there's more hope for those small companies to, uh, to be successful. So, so I love that, but to play devil's advocate, do we think that we're then going to end up with a monoculture where these big companies are going to gobble up all the small providers, right? If I have to help you protect your stuff, I might as well own you and reap the benefits of that. Well, there is some of that, but this is another um, evolution that I've seen just while I've, while I've been at Splunk. And that's because we have a pretty robust government affairs um, business unit that I never knew about before. And we have dialogue with Congress. And there are structures around that. And there are ways that we as a vendor can voice our concern. We have the same concern, you know, because the bigs, just like on the industrial side, like with the, the companies that make hardware and jets and tanks and all of that, they're, they're so huge. You know, they, um, they have a lot of power and control in terms of gobbling up companies. Well, the same is true on the tech side. But what I've seen is that more and more, not as many as we'd like, but more and more, um, elected con Congress people and senators are getting smarter about technology and their role in legislating technology than there ever has been before. Do we need more education? Yes, but at least they're opening their doors to have conversations or even at the committee level um, or the subcommittee level, they are listening to technology vendors like, like us. Um, I, I, would imagine they're open to you know startup conversations as well. I just don't know because I'm not in one. But that didn't always exist. You know that sharing of information, that opening of dialogue. So that is our way as a, as a vendor to kind of hedge against or help to hedge against that monolithic you know monopoly takeover. Um, because left to their own devices, large companies will probably want to do that. 
So there, there are ways for us to vocalize, you know, why monopolies are a bad idea, you know, and uh, behemoths just scooping up a lot of small companies is a bad idea. And I think we just have to keep leaning into those opportunities and, and talk with legislators when they give us the open door. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, we're, we're definitely seeing consolidation in the cloud in general, at which I think is going to, you know, one of the problems that we are working with our clients to solve as an example is concentration risk and cascading risk. Well, if you don't have options, you don't really, you, you lose the ability really to deal with, to deal with a lot of, of the concentration risk. So, all right, great. So you, you, you mentioned public private. So that was sort of the third thing that I wanted to talk about. Um, you seem somewhat optimistic, which is good. I have not been as optimistic because we've seen this conversation before and a lot of the big companies kind of go like, what's in it for us? Mm-hmm. Um, and years and years ago, uh, I covered uh, encryption technology and there was a standard called IEEE 1619 and it was about key management. And every vendor in the space said, oh, we'll be happy to manage everyone else's keys oh, you want to manage my keys? Not so much, <laughs> yeah. right? So, so it seems to me that a lot of these, these things, it's very difficult because people don't want to give up control, right? They don't want to open their raincoat, as it were. So what are, so you seem optimistic about the public-private. You gave some, some, you alluded to some examples. So where, where are you seeing public-private actually be good and, and bringing value as opposed to just more headache? Um, Ukraine. I'll say that, unfortunately, the situation, and, and this is the case with many things, right, Jeff? It takes a crisis to open up, d- break through some of the paradigms and some of the barriers that have existed. It doesn't always work out, but when something bad happens, people rally together and they want to do good in the world. And I would argue that the Ukraine the war in Ukraine right now is one of those burning platforms where there are vendors coming together, you know, with government to share more than they normally would, you know, because it's the right thing to do for this country that's been overrun. And, um, and has a leader, like, I don't think we've ever, we've seen, you know, in, in modern years that people want to get behind. Um, I, I, that's just personal because I know Splunk is involved in some of those conversations. So I know that we are involved, but I think that's, that's an example of if we can use that to show there is, we're better together sharing information than if we keep protecting, like, like you use the key example. Well, I'm not going to share my key. Well, then guess what? Stuff like 9-11, you know, um, the cyber and the, um, all the cyber attacks that are going on around the world um, that happen because of lack of information sharing, they're going to keep happening to us. And nobody wants that. You know, nobody wants that. So maybe this time, Jeffrey, we can get everybody behind, hey, look, if we come together, we can actually support this horrible thing that's happening in the world that is is not right, is unfair, is, you know, killing people and, and all that. So that's, that's my one example. And I'm hopeful that it has legs behind it. The other thing is, the notion of timing. And um, there are certain concepts that just people aren't ready for until certain times in history and in our lives. And um, 
maybe the time is right now. More people in the world, not just IT practitioners or cybersecurity, are aware of, you know, how cyber can affect them on a personal level, that they're paying attention, that they're learning more. Maybe that'll be helpful. And um, I, I am optimistic. I am hopeful. Maybe my bar is pretty low. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know what? That is one way to to not be disappointed. Um, so, so you know, it's funny you mentioned the global aspect because uh, back in December, uh, I was approached to write a blog on predictions, and I kind of don't like doing that because you you either you're either not interesting or you're so aggressive people call you a dope. So I ended up actually writing a more humorous take on it and one of my predictions was that we were going to see a global cybersecurity regulation. And What's funny is we're actually starting to hear buzz around that. And uh, a buddy of mine, uh, Larry Whiteside, who I don't know if you know him, but he's very, um, he's very visible CISO, very into, into uh, DEI. He was actually at the White House not too long ago. Um, but he, he does these walking kind of video snippets. And he actually talked about it. He said, is it, is it time for a global regulation. So I, maybe maybe it is time. Uh, I don't know who would write it. And some, somehow I think that some of the major players out there that are that we would need to be involved are actually part of the problem. And I don't want to get political, but yeah. I think we all know we all know who those who those those people are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's interesting, that, and I do know that we have seen uh, some global push toward like a ransomware um, policy set, at, at least. Um, but I, I'll tell you, I was talking to our head of research uh, last week, and uh, we were talking about ransomware and. Um, Ransomware gangs are are the new unicorn startups. They have documented organizational charts. They have customer success. They have sales. They have marketing. They have tech support. Uh, they have business units. You know, we were talking about how you know ransomware attackers sort of find their targets and they farm them out to people who know the industry, right? So. The bad guys are working together, and we as defenders, not as much. And and I, I just sometimes I feel a little hopeless. Um, I mean, part of the reason why I left Gartner to come to Black Kite is because I'm closer to the problem, and I feel like I can be more good. But I still talk to people who are really struggling with some of the you know basic blocking and tackling. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I definitely, I agree with you. I think there's some good stuff in the, in the strategy. I just think there's a reach to get a lot of it done. And as we know, the way, the way these things work is if we have a shift in party leadership, they'll chuck it and they'll publish another one. And, and I think that that's, you know, one of the challenges that, that we see, and it's not just the federal level, right? We see it at the state level, at the, at the city level, you know, a new mayor gets elected, a new governor gets elected and they're less technical, more technical. Um, And I just feel like there's, there's a lack of long-term consistency. And this is a long-term problem that can't be solved by a new strategy every four years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I just, there's no easy way to solve the issues that you're bringing up. There just isn't. But the op- I, 
And again, the open dialogue, the let's share more than we've ever shared before, you know, in the past, because that's the only way we're going to be successful. We just have to keep that up and, you know, and hope that, not hope, that's a terrible strategy, but the momentum that we have right now, people are paying attention. The administration is providing governance and top cover. We, we can't make ourselves crazy with what might happen after the next election, because first of all, we know it's going to be, you know, combative and there's going to be all kinds of inefficiency and, you know, mudslinging and all that kind of stuff. But let, let's not keep that. Let's not let that from keep. Let's not let that get in the way of creative solutions and, and partnering while we have the opportunity to do it, um, because it is the right thing to do. And our adversaries are out there kicking our butts in so many ways that we've got to do something different. And that joining together is is the way to do it. Um, one thing that kind of comes to mind, Jeffrey, I think is talking to non-technical people about why this is important can be hard to do. You know, to use stories and analogies. And, you know, I kind of brought up real briefly the, the issue about Ukraine. But you only have to share a little bit of information with people about how important the cyber um, environment is to Ukraine's success to get people going, oh, oh, okay, I see why this could be valuable. But another one that another colleague of mine shared with me recently is, is an example she uses about um, playing poker. I don't know if you play, are you a poker player? Uh, I, I know how to play poker. I am too emotional to actual gamble because I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm too emotionally invested in yeah. those things. Yeah. Um, I play poker. In brief, I'll just be real brief about it. The, the idea is that there's cards that are put on the table that are community cards. Everyone uses the same cards that the dealer puts out. But what you have in your hand, your cards in the hole, are the cards that only you see. So you're making, take, making bets or taking risks and thinking about what other people are likely to have based on how they're betting their money. Well, sometimes there are people at the table who are in collusion with each other, and they are giving each other signals about what cards that they have. And, you know, they have an advantage because they are sharing information that the rest of us need and don't have. So I kind of liken that to, not that we want to talk about us being in collusion with each other, but your chances of being, of winning, taking the pot, you know, winning the game, whatever, they go way up if you know what all the other cards are that everybody has, right? And so... That's the teaming. That's where we need to be sharing information with each other because our adversaries are in collusion at the table. They are there to take our money and take a lot stuff that's more valuable to us than money. And we have to think of it that way. You know, we've got to start playing together. And if we don't, we're just going to be the schmucks that keep getting our money taken away from us. And, um, you know, changing the rules of the game, not to be illegal or unethical, but stuff that we can control, the trusting other government agencies, for example, trusting other companies that you might have partnerships with, like, let's actually lean into that and, and share. And yeah, maybe it'll hurt our pocketbook in terms of market share or who we sell to, but that's not as important as being able to help the world be safer, you know, for everybody, at least in my opinion. I'm, I'm with you. I, 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 want, I want to help people be better. And I, mm -hmm. I do think there is a little bit too much sort of cut, cutthroatedness, if that's a word. I don't think it is um, out there. And, and I think, but it comes back to the whole standards thing, right? 
if everybody worked together on one set of standards, everyone would be better off. And I don't think it would negatively impact anybody's market share. It would actually force people to actually execute. What a, what a shocking idea, right? Okay. Let's, let's actually reward companies that execute well and have good products rather than, than the ones that, uh, you know, are, are holding extra whole cards. I love that, uh, that poker uh, metaphor. Uh, I did, I did go to a casino last week and sit down at the blackjack table and I lost $60 in like three and a half minutes. So not a, not, not, not a very good gambler. Yeah. I had my buddy and I sat down. I had, I had blackjack the first hand. I was like, Ooh, and then I hit 20 and the dealer had 18. I went, Ooh, and I didn't win another hand until all my money was gone. <laughs> Well, Tim, but when we you did, sit down we did go to check out you, Joe you control night, how much money so you're going to lose. The evening ended well. She was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, I actually put something up on LinkedIn about it for uh, International Women's Day because she is um, one of the undisputed queens of, of rock and roll. And they told her back in the day, you can't be a woman in a rock and roll band. <laughs> and she showed them she's, uh, you know, in her 60s and she's still, uh, you know, out there rocking and rolling. So, yeah. Okay. So one last question before we before we do our our wrap up. Um, how so from so you mentioned at the very beginning talking about how the, the new strategy is a good framework and that there's going to be a bunch of guidance coming. Um is the guidance coming from the White House? Are they looking at DISA and CISA and the DOD? Like, what are you hearing? And obviously, I won't ask you to share anything that is under NDA, but what are you hearing from the people that are, the, that are going to be doing these things? Right. Well, what traditionally happens, um, and I'm not, I am not a government affairs expert. I'm just going to tell you that. I just happen to their knowledge and their expertise. But... What traditionally happens is after the an executive order comes out or an administration level policy, the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, will then issue a series of memoranda that will then get more specific. So when the cybersecurity executive order came out, um, you know, 18 months ago or so, then OMB issued a series of memoranda, OMB Memorandum 21, TAC 31, for example, was about the data logging component of the executive order, cybersecurity executive order. So that's like a level of level or two of specificity um, that then the agencies and industry can look to for specific, okay, um, you have to log, you know, maintain your data logs for this period of time, or you, it's very, very specific. And that's stuff we can take action on. Those are the conversations we can have as a vendor with our customers about Take this high-level guidance and let us help you with this data logging piece. So, and that was just one of the memoranda that came out um, subsequent to the executive order. So, my guess is that's what's going to happen next. And then every agency, and then they have their own strategy document that that they will incorporate pieces of the national cybersecurity strategy into their document. So that's that's what happens next. Um, I can't speak for every department because I just. But that's generally. Are we, are we going to be able to? Are we going to be able to make any substantive progress before the next election? Because we we may have an administrative change, and if we do, I feel I feel like so much of what gets done then gets backed out when there's an administrative change. 
But, well, I, I get your point, but a lot of what's in the cybersecurity um, new policy isn't new. It's just new in policy. You know, so it's people who are already working on the things. I'll use zero trust as an example again, just because that one is a, is a term that is coming out in legislation and that, you know, we're not, this isn't like, oh, hey, zero trust, that just showed up on my, you know, in my inbox yesterday. No, it just adds. I'm sorry, I'm not much familiar with zero trust. I, I hear this is the year of PKI though. That's what everyone's yeah, saying. Sure. PKI. <laughs> yeah, that new thing. So that's, you know, people are already working on these issues, you know, already delivering capability that aligns with the, um, what's outlined in the, in the strategy. It just adds that layer of authority, you know, uh, and legislation that's required for a lot of organizations to actually take action. So, you know, not, not a whole lot new, right? If you read through it, you're not going to see stuff and say, oh, wow, they just educated me on a bunch of stuff because you're an expert in this field. So that's, yeah, I, Yes, there'll be changes after the next administration, but I wouldn't say they're earth shattering because progress is already happening along a lot of the uh, elements that are in the strategy. All right. Awesome. So we are about out of time. I want to thank Juliana for, for joining us. Let me give you a quick recap and then I'll kick it back to you for any final thoughts. So favorite winter movie, Christmas Story. And as we're sitting here, you know what? I changed my vote. I am with you. Christmas Story is the, is the one. Um, uh, Public-private partnerships are definitely really, really important there, and you're definitely seeing some some good movement there. Um, I need to be part more part of the solution for DEI, and I am going to take that as as some homework. I, I have always been a, a big fan of that work, and I, and I do think I can probably do more. So I'm definitely gonna gonna do that. And Juliana thinks that we're actually going to start making some some progress with. Uh, with with cybersecurity, and I hope that she is correct. Any final thoughts, my friend? Keep going, Jeffrey. Keep being out there and having different conversations than everyone else, because there's a lot of noise. And the more creative you are, um, the more people are going to listen. So thank you for having me be part of that effort and part of that journey. It's a pleasure to be your friend and your and your former colleague. And uh, keep rocking. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Juliana. Uh, this has been another episode of Risk and Reels with our guest, Juliana Vita. Uh, stay safe, stay healthy, stay secure. We've out. Thank you for listening to Risk and Reels, a cybersecurity podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to riveting 30-minute conversation about movies and cybersecurity. Jeffrey will be on the road this year at some of the industry's biggest events, but you can always find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Jeffrey Wheatman. This podcast is powered by Blackkite, the only security rating service to deliver the highest quality intelligence to help organizations make better risk decisions.